Where is your red line? No losses? Make as much as inflation or make as much money as you can. How much pain can you take? Investors need to find out what their red line is and how it moves. The Red Line Money Podcast can help you find it. Redline Money takes the expertise of David Roach and Richard Harris as they talk markets, prices, bubbles and busts, and some even more interesting topics. David and Richard have nearly a century between them of searching for the red line in bull markets and bear. Hear what the crowd isn't saying about current markets and price moves in the long term and even longer. Back to the Egyptians. See markets as an engineering system, a biological organism, or as the behaviour of subatomic particles. You don't get this anywhere else, and you know it makes sense. Today we're going to go for a little bit of a change of topic, and something that I feel our regular experts, David and Richard, aren't necessarily the most au fait with, which is looking at the sort of environment a little bit more and how we can actually maximise the potential. And so instead of asking you guys the questions today, you're going to ask the questions of an actual expert in the field. We are joined by Nick Kennedy. He is the Chief Economist at Independent Strategy. He bears primary responsibility for all aspects of Independent Strategy's investment research process with a focus on macroeconomics and financial market strategy. But he also finds time to pursue more left field research topics such as disruptive technologies and environmental economics, which is what we're going to focus on today. We are, and I'm going to get to ask first question. Nick, as I am of simple mind as regards the environment, let me put this in the sort of image I can understand. There's a tree growing happily in the wild and if I have a sense of ethical purpose and responsibility to humanity and I'm not motivated by the same sort of things as say Bolsonaro in uh, Brazil, I will spare that tree because I'm a nice person and I care about nice things. But however, along comes somebody else and says, I'll give you $100 for the tree. And I will say, chop it down, give me the $100. Bang, end of question. Now, what you're saying in your studies is we can actually make leaving the tree alone pay me more, me, the tree hugger, owner, and potential seller. It can actually pay me more than chopping the damn thing down. Can you explain that to me? That sums it up quite nicely, really. Um, how do you get someone to value what is actually a resource versus just cutting it down for that instant gratification of being able to, I don't know, sit by a fire if you if you need it for firewood or or chop it down to have somewhere for your cattle to, to graze or grow feed to, to feed that cattle. And really, the underlying problem with deforestation and those other kind of environmental crimes, you could argue, is that there ha- so far there hasn't been a, a reason not to do it because the economic benefits are up front you you get the heat immediately you get somewhere to put your cow immediately but the benefits of the tree are only you only see those in the long term in fact you probably don't see them at all because you don't notice it from day to day it's almost another generation thing but the the, the reality is that the the ecosystems that we rely on to keep the globe going and society and humanity and all everything all life going is you need to preserve it so you have those two contradictions in a way 
you get the upfront benefits from chopping it down and none of the costs if you're around today, but your children or your grandchildren might feel those consequences. Humans innovate all the time. Financial innovation is another thing. So if you can actually put a value on the rainforest today, as opposed to tomorrow, where the costs are, bringing those costs into the present, you can then motivate change. You need to create a financial incentive today to stop people doing things that outweigh the current financial incentive. And structuring new financial products around that is the way to go. Nick, some of us have been pulling our hair out trying to find solutions and one or two of us have been more successful than others. What is the solution? Because don't you have to have some higher authority go and say, well, we have to add a, a cost to these things. That tree is not worth 100, it's worth 150, and that 50 goes to future generations. But how would we actually enact such a thing? All these things are difficult until you've come up with a solution. I mean, most of most carbon storage and carbon capture and carbon credits have been sort of the buzz thing, and particularly carbon credits, the idea of pricing carbon. So therefore, when you run your car or when your factory and it produces a ton of carbon dioxide, you, you cost that. But the problem is, it's all the vested interests and the, the interested parties get together and work out a carbon price that suits them, not a carbon price that reflects the true cost of the damage. So I think the IMF estimated that the current carbon price is about $2 a tonne, whereas to get us to sort of net zero emissions and the Paris climate goals, you need something closer to $50 to $100. And that's probably a reflection of the cost. So if you're only valuing a tree at $2, I mean, a tree is worthless. If the amount of carbon it can capture is minimal. It's never going to get there. But if you, if you start to price carbon at 1500 the tree suddenly becomes worth more. So it's about realising the intrinsic value of the tree. It's a fundamentally underpriced asset. Lots of natural resources have been underpriced until the technology is there to utilise. So no one valued uranium until someone found a use for it. No one valued oil until someone found a use for it. So there's all these resources that look completely irrelevant until you find a technology to do it. And I think we're in an era now where we can work out how much the contribution of a rainforest or a forest or anything that can absorb carbon, even a whale, what it's actually worth. And you can price it on where we need to be. And then you can start to value the asset. And the trick is how you how do you package that asset to make it worthwhile? Why would someone want to buy a rainforest? Well, if you can say, well, the, the rainforest at the moment you can buy for $500, $1,000 an acre, but it should be worth $20,000 an acre if you price carbon correctly, then you're starting to build up a story as why you shouldn't chop it down today to create a load of subsistence living jobs for a few farmers. When you can actually think, well, actually, this is a tradable asset. We can package it now into a new product and sell it to other investors or other interested parties. And that becomes an appealing asset class in itself. And you can embed all sorts of different things into it. A corporation could look at its carbon footprint and say, well, we need to buy X amount of rainforest today. And if our carbon price is assuming this in the future, if we buy it today at $2, it makes economic sense for us to buy up rainforest now to offset our emissions in the future. In a sense, what you're looking at is securitization of economic assets. But that requires an element of packaging that requires some authority to say this is what it's worth. And you've got some quite interesting ideas around tokens and tokenization about how that may be done. How do you think that might be put into practice? That's what's different now as opposed to maybe 10 years ago or 20 years ago is, is the technology available to do this is developing. I mean, the blockchain technologies particularly are very interesting in terms of how you can securitize something and tokenization as they call it in the crypto community. And it enables you to build quite complex structures. So for example, you could integrate aid payments into it. You could put smart contracts into place, which can actively monitor in real time and lock in what you have to do 
So, for example, if you're a government and you promise to ring fence a certain portion of rainforest for preservation, it can monitor that. You can embed that into the contract. You can link that preservation to aid payments. You could link it to more favorable trade terms, for example. They may be dependent on commodity exports. You may say, well, we'll give you trade relief for other services things as an offset, as a quid pro quo for that. What you need is to find out where people's needs are. It's a little bit like the vaccine at the moment. If you have a vaccine, you can travel. If you have a vaccine, you can send your kids to school, etc. You've got to give people an incentive to do it. What's lacking at the moment for a lot of them is the short-term economic incentives. If you're a developing economy, which a lot, most of the places with pristine rainforests and huge eco-resources that are so far untapped are, they've got a responsibility to their populations to raise their living standards and bring them in and educate them. But to do that, they need higher quality jobs. If they want to escape their middle income trap and move up the value chain, they need to do that. So this can probably create incentives, suitable incentives for them to, to push them in that direction without incurring any kind of economic penalty. Because if you can realise the asset value of, of their resources in this way, much like you can the oil underneath the Saudi Arabian desert, if you can do the same to the rainforest and monetize that in that way, you can give them their eco-dollars as opposed to the petrodollars. And, and you can see how that can transform people's living standards. And that's what they really lack. So that there's a huge incentive for this to be processed in that way. One of my biggest concerns on, on this whole thing is how you protect that asset once you bought it. You know, company or individual decides to buy an area of the Amazon that's the size of a, you know, a small country. But we all know the illegal logging and all sorts of practices go on. How is that you know, kept safe and monitored? once you start this sort of process? Creating a financial incentive, but it also creates an incentive to preserve it. Because like, if you have a financial asset and it's worth X, you're going to want to preserve that. I mean, the reason why anti-poaching measures were effective in quite a lot of places is because people started to understand the value of the asset, the elephant or the rhino. So therefore, they put the financial resources in place to protect that. Now, if you've got a huge slab of rainforest and you say, well, actually, we think this is if you look at the Amazon, the entirety of it, and you look at the carbon cost of, if you're getting towards 50 to $100 per ton of carbon emitted, I mean, you're looking at something that could be worth $6 trillion or something like that. Now, if something's worth $6 trillion, you can bet there's a big financial incentive to fund people to protect it, whether that's by gun, which obviously now anti-poaching started, or other financial incentives. And also, people once, once you've created the asset and people understand the true value of it, you can show them and demonstrate to them what it's worth in real hard currency, people's attitudes change fast. <laughs> At the end of the day, you, you really have to go back to some kind of Paris Accord. I mean, I can see the US now, post-Trump, and Europe getting involved, and maybe Japan if you don't include Wales, and maybe they'll have some incentives in terms of trade, etc. But you point out the two forest to agrarian economies, Brazil and Indonesia, but the two biggest polluters are the two most populous countries in the world, India and China. Unless you bring them on board, we don't really have a start of proceeding from here. Like all things, things that don't exist yet are always difficult to extrapolate exactly where something might go. I mean, of course, you need everyone to participate in these things, but it's like all the innovation. Once you come up with a, a way of doing something and start doing it and there's money to be made, I'm pretty sure the Indians and Chinese will get on board pretty quickly. This is why some things like these innovations are, could be quite important is because previously you were trying to incentivize people to improve their behavior. It's like getting someone off the couch to go jogging. Getting them off the couch is quite a laborious process often, and you might get them off the couch once, but you need to incentivize them. And, and incentivizing them, oh, you might live five years longer, probably is not going to do it. If you pay them to get off the couch, the chances of them continuing to jog 
And if other people find out you're paying someone to jog, everyone else might get off the couch as well. It's just reframing the incentives. Unless you can get incentivized people to do something. Altruism is very nice and everyone likes to sort of do a little bit for charity and things like that. But the things that really transform societies are financial incentives. And you can see that and how other businesses have lobbied to try and slow the protection of the environment and slow the transition to sort of a lower carbon economy because they're incumbents, they make nice money out of it. If they can delay it for a few years or drag it out for a little bit longer, they make billions and billions and billions. Well, you're creating the flip side of that coin. You're creating a system that if you don't do it, you're losing billions and billions and billions because the more rainforest you chop down, by the time you've got around to this, you've chopped down $2 trillion worth of rainforest or more. If you add it up globally, it's, it's a huge number. And so once those huge numbers start to play, everyone gets involved. Have you got any examples? Because I think within your report, you mentioned an example of a sort of scheme along these lines that's already in place and how that's worked so far. Yeah, there's Costa Rica. I mean, it's a middle income, higher, higher middle income country these days. It's, it's, it's done very well for itself. But it, yeah, it started to create an incentive structure whereby the farmers got paid for not chopping down the rainforest. And it, and it works. They've, it's probably the only place in the world that actually seen pristine forest expand over the last 10 years. But it's a, it's a small scheme, but it, it provides a good test case. You know that once you incentivize people, behavior can change quite quickly. And, they, and it's a small place, so they've got a bit of an edge. They can draw some tourism and maybe the whole world can't draw tourism in the same way as a sort of little test case could. But it shows you once you create a financial incentive, habits can change quite quickly and they can come up with new economic angles to profit from that as well. So it's, yeah, it's been a great, great scheme. If I can make one final point, it's estimated that the damage to the environment is carried out to the tune of chopping down four huge trees for every single consumer in rich countries per year. In other words, that is the amount of land which previously had trees on it now being cleared, which is needed to satisfy our demand for coffee and meat and whatever you want to name. And therefore, what you're proposing by putting a value on that damage, which can be monetized for the country in turn, is choking off that demand because the price of those goods for us has to rise and demand has to fall for the system to work. So what I'm saying is there are knock-on effects which are beneficial. I mean, me drinking three cups of coffee less per day, and I don't eat meat already, but Richard can certainly stop, is, it would be, is how this is going to feed through into final markets. It's just a point I'd make. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's incentivized behavioral change in the classic way through the wallet. Carolyn Wright and I've been speaking to David Roach and Nick Kennedy of Independent Strategy and Richard Harris of Port Shelter Investment Management. Music is by Tim Moore from Pixabay and Redline Money is produced in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm.